Welcome back to another episode of Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. Following on from last week's episode, myself, Jim Grout, and Louise Wagner, Beth Burrow, and Chip Wood discuss relational trust. Stick around to After Ella Says Goodbye for an additional resource shared by Chip. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you find value in this episode. Chip, in our first conversation that we had together, briefly touched upon leading together in the solar leadership work that you're working with currently. Speak a little bit to leading together in the solar leadership. Well, I think in the chronology of, of my work that in the late 90s, uh, I, with a colleague, Pamela Siegel, who was at Wellesley College and running a program called Open Circle, which is an SEL learning program for young kids, um, and it's an cr- actual curriculum. Another facilitator who was working with Open Circle, Lisa Sankowski, we all became interested in the work of uh, Parker Palmer. I, I, at that time, was working with Responsive Classroom, still employed with the foundation that was running Responsive Classroom. And we had all met Parker at a big SEL gathering in Kalamazoo, Michigan, at at the uh, Fetzer Institute. Uh, and uh, then it, it was at the same time that Parker Palmer, who wrote The Courage to Teach, which is the best underground seller in education that I know of, really worth reading, uh, created a program for K through 12 educators, administrators, teachers, uh, specialists to engage in reflective practice. Uh, around their work in a very deep way. And so he created a program called Circles of Trust as a courage to teach uh, experience that people could do on a quarterly basis in two-day retreats. And uh, we were trained in that work over a period of two years ourselves, with mentoring from him and other colleagues uh, in what became the Center for Courage and Renewal. So the interesting thing, the connection was that all of our work and in, in, um, the programs that Pamela and Lisa and I were working in at that time, we're working on the integration of cognitive development and academic growth to uh, social and emotional skills and uh, attributes. And we found and with good research found that that we in working with the University of Virginia Curry School of Education, that those things, th- those kinds of strategies that we were working with was making a difference in the community of the classroom. Mm-hmm. But the adult community was another story. <laughs> Often the, the faculty meetings and the roles that people play in school were not always the most collaborative, cooperative. The leadership was pretty hierarchical. The um, there were union issues. There were all kinds of things going on that are still that still remain in many school environments. And we thought that it would be wonderful eventually to see if we could create programs in education that used this circle of trust approach in 
the adult community of school so we could bring it in line with the classrooms that were and and whole schools that were really trying to make this happen this responsive classroom approach the open circle approach the castle approach which was growing at that time the collaborative from chicago at that time the collaborative for the advancement of social emotional learning which everyone knows about now and so while we were still doing our day jobs, we we put together a program called Leading Together, which brought together a principal and a team of three teachers with five or six other such leadership groups to form a cohort to engage in this work. Normally in the past, that had been people coming to these retreats voluntarily from schools that were very disparate. They were they, they would just come because they'd heard about Parker Palmer and they were held all over the country and different facilitators would, you know, it's pretty easy to be in a retreat when you don't know anybody. And it's, it, we found it's pretty, it's easier to bury your soul in such a place than it is with the colleagues that you work with every day uh, often. So, but we wanted to get it into the, into the, you know, the, the grassroots, if you will, of the, of the school environment and see if we could help people to develop more trusting relationships in the school. And we also came across at that time the foundational research for what's called relational trust, which we can talk more about. So that's, that's sort of how we came to it. And, and it was to really uh, lift up into the adult community of schools the work that we had been doing for so long as teachers ourselves, as principals ourselves, as and as facilitators uh, for teachers in classrooms. What for, you, what for you, Chip? You know, as you were considering moving into the, in this direction, what, what what spurred the mindset for you to follow that direction? Were you seeing stuff in schools that was lacking? Were you seeing gaps that needed to be filled? Were you seeing uh, moments that you felt were important to? to integrate some of this learning into working with adults? Well, yes, I had a lot of empirical evidence <laughs> just, from, just from walking into schools. Mm. As all of you know, and, and as people who are listening to this might, might also know, you kind of can tell about a school when you walk in the door. Mm. If you've been in education for a while, you really know when you walk in the door what you're walking into. Mm-hmm. And the level of friendliness and the lack of anxiety the degree of choice that teachers feel, is there autonomy? Uh, is there teacher autonomy? Are people trusted to do what they know how to do best? Or do you hear other, you see people stopping in the hall to whisper to each other? Or do you see them in the parking lot standing around a car? You can tell pretty much what you're walking into. So that, that empirical evidence is of no use unless you can uh, quote some famous study that was done, you know, in the way that research needs to be done to be justified. Um, and it was the Breichen Schneider work that uh, was done over the course of the 90s in Chicago, looking at elementary schools in Chicago during a time of uh, reform. So schools were given money to try new initiatives to try to bring up academic achievement. Uh, Breich and Schneider, who really had a group, uh, Anthony Breich and Barbara Schneider, and this book series was published by the American Sociological Association. So it's actually not a book that was put out by educators. Mm. It's, it was really put out by sociologists. And they had educational 
they definitely had educational help on their teams as they moved forward, but uh, they were the ones to begin it. Anthony Breich at that time was a Spencer professor in organizational studies uh, at Stanford. And Barbara Schneider uh, was at the University of Chicago um, Alfred P. Sloan Center in Parents, Children, and Work. So what they did was to see if they could isolate the variables that made for successful school change. And in terms of the, the social structure of the school community. And the fascinating part about it was that they were actually able to do sort of what you know when you're walking around a school for the first time. They narrowed it down to a few very specific issues that they finally were able to give a name to, and they called it relational trust. The degree of trust that the adults felt in the school for each other which they were measured through all kinds of surveys and questionnaires, had more bearing on whether the school improved or not than any professional development and curriculum, any test practice for the standardized tests that would raise test scores themselves, more than anything else as an independent variable. This made the difference. You know, when we came across that sort of coincidentally, at the same time that we were thinking about this program, developing this program, for us, that, that gave us the, found, the theoretical and, and research foundation that we needed to try to build up in the Leading Together program. Mm-hmm. So in, the, in, in putting together that program, we added some very basic components to explore what relational trust really meant. What does a relational trust look like in practice? Well, so they, they helped us with that too. <laughs> okay. So uh, the, the, there are four components to relational trust, so they gave it a definition. And, and they said, these, if, if you see these four things in your, uh, in your school or you can measure them and see where things are, need a little help or are really doing well, you'll, ha- you'll sort of get a pathway of knowing what, what it's going to look like. So the first is respect. That, that's a word that's on the wall of every school in America. <laughs> Poster somewhere, right? Yep. I guarantee you if you if you had to, if you could win a million dollars by finding a school that didn't have the poster respect in it and it was a secret, you wouldn't be able to find it. So they say, and I'm quoting, in the context of schooling. So right now Relate, the important thing about relational trust is it just does not operate outside of schooling, this definition. In other words, there are other forms of trust. There's organic trust. There's organizational trust. There are uh, contractual trust. You know, there's all kinds of different ways you can think about trust. But they start right out saying in the context of schooling, raises schooling where it needs to be a very sacred community that has made its way down from villages in Africa and uh, and from Socrates and from who knows all over the world, that schooling is, is something of its own that is so 
precious. And we sure know that today, don't we? Right today, how precious schooling is because how difficult it is to not have it. So the general population is really becoming aware of how critical schooling is. So in the context of schooling, oh, by the way, do you know what the word school means in the Greek? It means leisure, scolari, leisure. Isn't that astounding? Doesn't it say something about uh, what we need to be paying attention to? Um, In the context of schooling, respect involves recognition of the important role each person plays in a child's education and the mutual dependencies that exist among various parties involved in this activity. Key in this regard is how conversation takes place within a school community, a genuine sense of listening to what each person has to say marks the basis for meaningful social interaction. So that's their definition of respect, sounding. It's a definition that has legs, right? It has, it's an action definition. Can you listen? Can you be interested? Can you make space? The second is competence. In the school setting, relational trust, competence means how others measure a teacher's or a principal's or a staff member's job performance. Not, in this case, to the formal supervisory relationship, but to more informal observations or recognitions that are always being made in the school setting, both positively and negatively. So as in the, all of the conversation going on nationally now around race and Black Lives Matter and implicit biases, you know that there's lots of informal observations and recognitions that are always being made in settings about really difficult things to talk about. And the question of that's where competence shows up. That's where leadership shows up. That's where courage shows up. That's where a willingness to look at yourself and own your own behavior shows up. That's a different kind of competence than the competence that we try to lay on performance. Two more. Personal regard for others, which says that any action taken by a member of a role set to reduce others' sense of vulnerability affects their interpersonal trust. So teachers, paraprofessionals, a, a, a term that we invented to demean and separate those human beings from the teachers, as opposed to saying, we are all teachers in this school. And some of us do different jobs. I know in the schools where I was principal, one of the best teachers was always the custodian and the school secretaries and the people in the lunchroom. And they had a different way of approaching the world, maybe, than the regular classroom teachers. And But it sure enriched the conversations about, about things and whether they had to feel isolated or whether they felt like their ideas, their voice was important. In our work in Leading Together, we lifted up the whole idea of lifting every voice in the school community, that every voice is important. 
And then finally, they to define relational trust is integrity. We think of individuals as having integrity if they're consistency, if they have consistency between what they say and what they do. So it's a willingness to try out new things, to make mistakes, to speak out and advocate for your adult community as a principal, even when that is not popular with the superintendent or at the superintendent's table with other principals. And so respect, competence, personal regard for others and integrity in the school setting is what defines relational trust. And were the measures that they used and that we uh, continue to develop the whole idea of adult community in schools with. Bethel and Louise, how, how does those four things resonate with you? Both maybe Beth from your experience working in school and as an administ- school administrator and then and Louise in your relationship with EOL and, and and the work that we do with schools now. Well, I would say that hearing you talk about this chip and the four components and the definitions just brings me back to many places in my career, but probably most importantly when I first started as the superintendent of a school district before I got there, I knew that the fir- the very first thing I had to do was build relational trust and that it was the most important thing before I could dive into any kind of um, initiatives or take care of things that I thought maybe could be improved in the district, that this was the most important thing. And one of the things that I always tried to do, and it, it you know, you can say you have an open door policy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that when someone walks through the door and has something to say, you're going to listen to them. And so I tried always to be very intentional about allowing people to feel comfortable coming to see me and talk to me and bring up really any issues that they felt were important. And that was not always easy depending on the day and everything else that was going on. And I always tried also to put in perspective what people were bringing to me whether it was a suggestion or an issue or a complaint, because I had been in other positions in education. I'd been in the classroom. I had been a supervisor, a case manager, and a principal. So it was very easy to, as a superintendent to be in this place where someone would come in and, and talk about something that seemed so small, but to them, it was very big and the most important thing that they needed to talk about or share. So that was something that I, that I again, um, tried to constantly be aware of when I was talking to people just to, as a way to build trust, um, have an openness to new ideas. And again, it's, I was thinking about listening and hearing. And I know that the definition of hearing can be more about, you know, the, the physiological, can you hear? How well do you hear? But for me, really hearing someone is about doing more than just listening to their words, but trying to help them communicate what they really, what they need to do. Um, The other thing that I did as a superintendent that uh, initially some of the other administrators were surprised at, I I will not take credit for coming up with this idea. The one of my um, best mentors who was superintendent also in a previous district started to do this. We had monthly open forum meetings and it was an opportunity and they were held after school. So it was after the contracted day 
and I would go to the board conference room and just be there. The principals and supervisors would sometimes come and sometimes not, and that was fine. Um, and it was an opportunity for anyone in school community, including, you know, parents. I mean, that rarely happened, but sometimes it did. But really, you know, as you said, Chip, it, it didn't matter what role that person was in. Anyone in the school community was was able to come to that place. And it was an open forum for sharing, communicating. Sometimes it was bringing up issues. Sometimes it was suggesting uh, ways to improve ways to improve the school culture, ways to improve maybe something that wasn't working quite right. And I found those to be very helpful for everyone, for me especially, because if there were people that had concerns or issues, I wanted them to feel safe being there and being able to talk about it. And I also wanted to know what the issues were if they were, you know, as you said, out in the parking lot talking to each other after school, that wasn't going to help anything change. So, you know, we had some norms around these these meetings. If, you know, it wasn't okay for someone to come in and start to complain about another person, um, obviously, you know, so we would kind of just run through those very quickly um, at the beginning and then um, let people say what they needed to say. And then, then I, what I would do at the end of the year, um, I would take notes, not, you know, I mean, maybe just jot things down. I didn't spend the whole time <laughs> writing because I was trying to listen. But, um, you know, I would, at the end of the year, just send an email out and thank people for being there and and kind of let them know what things we were able to improve upon based on the conversations we had in those meetings. So for me, that was a, another great way, an example of how I was able to build relational trust. I think... Um... As you were speaking, Chip, to that outline of those four kind of components, uh, my brain kept attaching it to examples from our summer program that we run for Edge of Leadership. And it breaks my heart that it didn't get to happen this summer um, on our 10-year anniversary. But there's still so many ways where my first like really rich experience at High Five was there um, up on the hill with students and teachers and mentors from organizations coming together from across New England in order to spend just three days. But those three days, for me, I always leave with so much learning and from uh, reports back and sharing from the students and educators that are involved, it sounds like it's the same really heightened, powerful experience. And one of the pieces that really stands out there that is so special is that the participants that come, the students, the teachers, the organizational mentors, everyone are all participants. The kind of power dynamics. And you started by talking about distributive leadership and to see that we can create a space where we're naming that we're really mixing up how people are allowed to engage, how they are allowed to think of themselves in relationship to the other participants there um, just creates a, a different um I guess a different feel around the relational trust that can really happen between everyone as equals in that sense. Um, and so there's just been so many powerful moments and examples of those things that you named um, coming to fruition while they're standing on the side of a swamp, looking across, trying to figure out how they're going to cross it with nobody having any experience or ideas, they're all just 
stumped and needing to figure it out, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a student, doesn't matter that all these people coming together from across New England are now trying to problem solve together in some ways that by the end of our three days is really inviting them to translate. What does this mean when you go back to your community? And hoping that some of that trust, that connection, that feel that was generated on the edge of the swamp can be brought back to that school with that small pod of people that participated together. I see this in some small ways play out within the hour and a half that we have with teachers and their students in the classroom, which has been so beautiful and wonderful to be able to see that connection in moments when we're inviting everyone to engage in a prompt for the start of the day or play in some tag game that the teacher is invited, welcomed, encouraged in order to play and to see that happen and all the adults in the classroom being able to play and engage has been so, it's just so nice to see that connection. And I guess a question that I have is for you, Chip, when you think about the kind of uh, relational trust, there is like EOL has been focusing a lot on building that within the students. And then I hear you and we're also gravitating towards this work of doing the work with the staff teams as well, because that's really important. But then like all of that sits within the school community and there's like the trust that needs to happen between the adults and the students and vice versa. I'm just wondering how there's that like holistic kind of completely interconnected web that it's not kind of like, all right, the the staff sphere and the student sphere, but that those are also kind of all intermingled. There was not quite a clear question there, but I have a curiousness around how those two kind of realms also interplay with each other? That's a great question. (laughs) A very good question. And which we've been exploring for a long time too. And in our work, I I didn't want to let the moment pass to say you picked the right analogy by using the swamp. (laughs) We're real good at creating, have been over time, your organization, the organizations I've worked with and schools in general have figuring out how to work, how to make things work for other people who are smaller and younger. In other words, we do it. We, we, we think we've got it all figured out for what to do with children. And there are different ways in which schools set up their norms for children. If you want to call them the rules that are in the disciplinary handbook. Um, the, uh, the way in which discipline is met, meted out, what behaviors are tolerated and which are not. And we feel like we do that as adults because we know best and we, we can play, put the, all of these things in place for the safety and well-being of the children. And all of that is very well-intentioned by people, I think, who work in schools. I not, don't want to doubt that for a minute. But it is done often without looking deeply at your own self, your own practice, your own professionalism, and the way in which you are behaving in that environment. We came at it with the leading together work and some in responsive classroom before I moved in just into this solely, this work solely or mostly by having the adults start thinking about what guidelines were they using for their own behavior. Sort of like Beth, what you were saying with the norms for the, 
for the after-school sessions, the open forums. And uh, because in the classroom, in schools that were uh, using at that time character education or social-emotional learning programs of various kind and or trying to integrate like with programs like Open Circle or Responsive Classroom, the children made up these rules in the classroom. And they made them up from their hopes and dreams for what they wanted to accomplish in school that year. What rules and uh, will we need in this classroom for our hopes and dreams come true to come true? Because Beth wants to be a writer, and and Jim said he wants more recess time, and and uh, Anna Louise wants to go on outdoor trips, and you know Phil is just determined to be a mathematician this year. So what rules do we need in our classroom to make those hopes and dreams come true? And they would figure it out. And then we would practice. As a, as a teacher, we would, if I was teaching that class, we would practice those rules. We would call, we would talk about them when they needed to be talked about. But in the adult community, that's a whole different story. We asked the adult community to start thinking about what adult community guidelines did they need in order to be productive and feel respected and increase the trust in the school community. And we would go through the very same process by asking them a little bit, in a bit, little bit more sophisticated way than um, hopes and dreams, although there's nothing wrong with hopes and dreams, about goals and aspirations and uh, collective intelligence and uh, those kinds of things. People struggled with that. Because once the guidelines were in place, and they always were beautiful, and you know these are the kinds of guidelines that end up in the notebook on the shelf, uh, or not on, and even on the wall. But people don't, you know, look at them after a while. When we first did it in my school, I remember we put them in the elevator, and we put them in the teachers' room, and we put them, you know, places where people would see them a lot. But then, then the essential question was: So what happens when the adults break the rules? Hmm. Well, you know, we have a contract and we have lawyers and we have all kinds of ways that we deal with misbehavior. But can we come together to talk about our disagreements in a way that reduces the conflict and produces more productivity in the daily work that we all hold a sacred trust around, which is to be in school together? So. You know, we've made a, we've a lot of false starts and a lot of ups and downs, and some schools did well, and some schools couldn't handle the idea of leading together. So there, and we have some reports from that from the University of Virginia in the first two years of a pilot study that we did with this. And it's very interesting work because it's at a different level, and yet it's just as important, as, if not more important, than what goes on in the classroom. I think going back to those four points, that the first one being respect, which is about listening. I remember when you came in, Chip, to work with a high five staff, and now I've started to use this practice in the trainings that I lead called turn and listen, which obviously is important because there's that listening component. Could you describe that to people listening and what turn and listen is? Because I think that's an actionable, simple task that people could put into practice. Well, in our work, we keep, keep trying to develop, as you do, I know, keep trying to develop protocols that are going to be at the heart 
of what you're trying to accomplish. As we tried things out, one of the things that I've been really interested in and studying is what's been described in the sociological world as social acceleration. That our, that our world, as we see today, um, in terms of the things we're facing, is, you know, environmentally accelerating, all kinds of things are happening. But the social acceleration of feeling we need to do more sooner, better, immediately, has really been overwhelming the human mind and emotions, particularly around anxiety, so that people are always multitasking, always doing more than one thing in their mind at the same time, so that the capacity to truly understand another person's point of view or perspective or even to hear the words that they're saying, as you were saying, that the hearing, the deep hearing, it is a very difficult thing. So I try to break it down to its most specific. And actually, I... It, this is sort of an aside, but it maybe not. So you all worked with, I guess, a school not to be named in the podcast as the school, but a school that we both are familiar with, where I really was hoping that there was a place where I really was able to practice this skill that we developed of, didn't really develop, but it was turn and listen. And it came from uh, a practice that people were using in schools all over the country in the last decade called turn and talk. It was called turn and talk. It didn't have anything to do with listening. Well, it did, supposedly, because what you would say to the children would be in the classroom would be, all right, so we just read um, chapter 11 of Charlotte's Web, and it's a very sad chapter, and um, lots of things happen in it. So I want you to stop and turn and talk to your partner, the person sitting next to you, and see what they have to say about the chapter. And then at the, and, and after a couple of minutes, you'd ring the bell and say, okay, now let your partner talk. All right. But what wasn't being taught was how to listen. So it, break it down to its very most specific place. Okay, so we're going to take two minutes to talk about uh, the poem that we read this morning. But we're going to do it in partners. So, and here's your partner, or you draw your sticks or whatever. You've got your partners. And uh, the first partner will go first, and they're going to get to talk for one minute. And when that minute is up, the other partner will talk for a minute. And when that minute is up, then you can talk with each other. But when the other person is talking in the first minute, there's you can't say a word. You just have to listen. So that little piece of turn and listen, which gets kicked up to two minutes in the adult community, people are astounded because it's so hard for them to follow the rules. It is so hard for them to follow the rules because what do we do when we're talking with somebody else? We step on their words. We interrupt. We, uh, we, have, we have some thoughts that will immediately shut them down that we want to set. We, we, we want to be in an argument, all of those things. So, the gift of listening is just astounding in school because as you also are all aware of who does all the talking in school, like I've been doing too much talking here, but that's what you're trying to <laughs> figure out a few things here. But, but all I'm saying is the teacher does all the talking. 
So like 80% of the talking is teacher talk. So this was a way for people to be able to practice, how can I listen more? And the other part of that, the last thing about that is, it requires people to work as partners. And I know I was coming back to the school we all have in common was that, that I did an online uh, thing recently where I asked people to journal about what makes you a good partner for someone else in school, for a partner that you're working with in school. What makes you a good partner? What partner gifts do you bring? And what do you need for a partner? What do you need from a partner? in school? What is something you're looking for? And why, in thinking about these things, might that help us in our school community to explore those questions? Just to put a a bow around this conversation on relational trust and not to be (laughs) remiss about mentioning that obviously the 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 times we're currently existing in should it be a higher priority for schools moving forward i think part of it is we've become more distant from it these times have created a lack of trust in trusting (laughs) and and i think some of it has been intentional and some of it has been circumstantial i think it's always been there the the thought of giving people an experience that involves trust feels like it would mean so much more to them today. It's as though when people just came here to the workshops called gathering again, and a lot of fear about gathering again in, in these times and being physical and being safe and whatever. And it was all done very safely, but the byproduct of, of many of those trainings with those people was almost an astounding feeling of trust and faith and coming together, seeing people. So I think the void that's been created in these times could create on the other end of it an astounding joy at experiencing that again. I remember years ago in a workshop, this is a little story, so this might be said do stories, but there was a, a group of men that were coming to do a workshop that I was involved with that they were domestic violence that they had, they had abused and it was coming through mental health services. And I remember feeling at the time, like, oh, I'm not sure that I can be good with this audience because I had sort of a, a thought about it, a profile that didn't make me comfortable. But of course, they went, went ahead and did it. And we were doing the simplest of trust things, the simplest. I mean, I can't remember what it was. It wasn't like a trust fall or lean or any of that. It was just something that was so basic to trust. And one of the participants began to tear up. And I, didn't say anything at the time. And then in the end, he was reflecting and he said, I have never experienced trust in my life as a child, as an adult. And, and that some of that is what led to what some of my behaviors were. And I share that and that's the most extreme example, to, you know, to imagine an entire life where you didn't have trust. From the, probably from the moment this particular person was born. So we haven't created, you know, that extraordinary an environment, but I think currently the lack of trusting trust, even as a concept to embrace and feel good about, is going to create a huge going to create huge opportunities, but huge challenges because people are fearful of what the truth is. What can I rely on? What can I have faith in? When I think of 
I guess our schools over the years, at least in my career, our school has always been when people come to us for one or three or five days of training and we call it a workshop. But in fact, it's our little school. Going back to the late 70s, I was astounded the first time and still am and, and so enjoy it that people come to get what they're getting. Like the people at Gathering Again came to get skills to say, how can I help my students be safe and have some activities that create connection and trust and do it in a safe way. And I think in the very beginning of any workshop, there was always, yes, we're going to impart these skills. We're going to show you how to do that. And we can show you how to climb a tree and go across a swamp. As you said, in Louise, it was one of my most joyous activities we do. I think this was, however, that all came up with this, like, this is so powerful. But in those typical workshops, there was always the imparting of skills and people learning from one another. And I used to love to think of it. It's an invitation to learn. What a wonderful environment to be in. And that learning includes teaching others and listening and all that. The thing that people never predicted they were going to get was this enormous feeling of community connection, family oftentimes. You know, many of the folks that are in this talk today, you know, have led those kinds of workshops. And I think that byproduct was bigger than the product. (laughs) Obviously, they needed to be able to run whatever program they were doing safely with the needed skills. But the more important thing was was how they were gathering, how they were trusting, relational trust, how they were learning from one another. The norms that got created, as you said, uh, Chip, were they come from the group. What's going to make this group work? And you can almost track when it happens, like around day two in a five-day workshop, it begins to fall into place and you can begin to feel it. And I just have so loved over the years the fact that by the end of that time period, and obviously it's harder in a one day, but it's in, and it's hardest. You, you mentioned the school we were at together, Chip. You know, can you what can you do in three hours? Well, we'll see. We had a request the other day. What can you do in an hour? Well, we can do something, but but the, it's that environment. It's constantly creating that environment. So going back to your original question, I think that environment is being so challenged at every level these days that both the challenge and the opportunity is there for us to embrace trust and faith in one another, you know, like we've never done before and, and accept nothing less. You know, we're, we're going to pursue that. We're going to pursue making that happen, whether it be in the schools we're working with or the people coming to our, what we call our little schools or workshops. But some of the greatest opportunities come at the times of the greatest challenge. And that certainly is the era we're living in. Jim, while you were talking about, and the question, I thought, I love the way the question was framed, Phil, that is it more important now than ever? And uh, I think that as educators, it's really important for us to look at the history of trust in uh, the literature. In other words, where did this whole idea of trust, we know now sort of about the pathway of a relational trust, but what about trust from a child development point of view and thinking about the whole idea of basic trust versus mistrust as being the underlying issue that humans face in the world. So when you said, Jim, that this person said they had never been trusted, uh, had never felt trust growing up, that the loss of that is something that can never be made up totally. As we know from early child development studies of, of babies raised in orphanages and Eastern Europe, but 
we can know that this that children face that struggle between trust and mistrust all the way through their lives. So children who are experiencing PSD experiences, teachers have to be trained in trauma and trauma and, and trained how to respond to trauma and trained to understand what the, this, this struggle around trust is, is really all about. Um, and that's why working with a partner in the classroom, you can learn uh, that everybody's different and you can trust the structure of the classroom and the work that you're doing to hold you um, carefully. Uh, those are important things to be able to focus on. And I'm very struck by the fact that the recent research that I've been looking at, at as at trust in European schooling have really picked up on this idea of trust is created through attachment, we know. That's a term used in psychology. But they picked up on the, the idea of the term attunement. That is how, how it is that teachers uh, taking the place of the primary caretaker can attune to each child that they have in their classroom in a way that helps the child know that they are known. And when a child is known, it's like feeling trusted to make mistakes. It's like feeling to know what their personality is like and that not everybody is the same. And to know that you are known also is the, gives you the hope and the motivation to be able to learn. And um, as that being the hope, being the principal byproduct of trust. So I think knowing how deep this foundation of trust is for us as human beings is something that we may feel that we need it even more, but we, we should know why we need it even more. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playtime. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for giving Article Pass a guy. <laughs>there was one thing that came to mind mm. when you were talking is it more important than mm -hmm. ever um i think i may have recommended this to you but if you haven't seen and you it would be wonderful for everybody to look at it you need to get from canadian broadcasting a video called children full of life children full of life it's a film in a fourth fifth grade looping class in japan and it i is, watched it did you watch it yeah, you suggested it a long time ago. Yeah. And it, I was like getting ready to go to visit my family for Thanksgiving. And I like watched it on the car ride while my partner was driving. So, yeah. <laughs> and it blow you I away. It clearly. It was really neat. It was really neat. Yeah. yeah. You can share yeah. more. But I was just recalling. I was like, I wonder if that's the one that I did watch. <laughs> well, it's still in your mind. So it must have made an impression. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's one of the... It's one of the most, uh, it's one of the deepest, 
movies about education that I've ever seen because it shows you that balance of what it takes to create trust and the willingness to make mistakes mm-hmm. and, uh, and be forgiven and move on and to also be able to show compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, all those things happen in this classroom. It's an amazing, mm-hmm. it's, and it's quite old, but it's, uh, it is, a, I hope it's stayed and never gets lost because people, uh, people should really see it. 